hey, welcome to Central Vineyard. And uh, I still feel weird. I'm still weird wearing masks sometimes. I've been doing it for a couple of years. It involves some level of comfort. If I'm having some social anxiety on a certain day, I feel a little sense of privacy more when I go out. That's kind of cool. And a lot of times my facial expressions don't match what I'm feeling at the given time. And that's caused social problems for me. So the masks have been the consolation, but at the same time, when I'm up here talking, it's like, I like smiling at people because I see, uh, I think when you read the words of scripture, a great deal of the time, it's best to do it through a smiling face. I do think the book of Galatians is an exception to that because as we said, uh, Paul, why are you so mad? Paul is angry and Paul is heartbroken that these people that he loved so much are being uh, having this idea that they have to embrace cultural distinctions of a certain people group in order to know God who's transcultural. And the idea is uh, you're going to destroy the narrative if you add these barriers around it. And going back to like the promise that God gave to Abraham, first book of the Bible, he said, through your descendant, all people groups of the world will be blessed. So the idea was God would do something with a specific group of people that would culminate in a person that would do something for all people. And the idea, and there's a temptation to always exist because humans have this universal fear of difference, is we want people to be culturally like us because like tends to attract like because people fear difference. And that is actually kind of an an animalistic self-preservation response. You know, rabbits fear wolves because wolves eat rabbits, but let's not be rabbits and wolves here, all right? And the idea is one of the elements of being fully human is embracing humans. And Jesus was the greatest human, the 100% God, 100% man, the God-man. Because basically everything we do here is predicated on an idea that we believe is actually the foundational truth of existence in the universe. I mean, first of all, it's insane to believe in God. If that, this is true, God is infinite, we are finite. So if there was a God, we couldn't know him because finite and infinite don't intersect. And I totally agree with that. Where I, where I take issue with some of the ways that's applied is there's nothing saying the infinite God can't use his infinite love and infinite power to incarnate human flesh to give us a way to know God. And the story of Jesus is the story of the word becomes flesh and dwells amongst us. What was obscure, unreachable, ideal context, the scriptures later on say that every other revelation before Jesus of God was like a shadow. But in Jesus, everything is brought to crystal clarity. And I love how some people say, well, in God there is nothing unchristlike. So this is a big deal, and actually this is controversial among some people because uh, a lot of people, especially in the West, seek to take any belief system and turn it into a grid of I'm for this, I'm against this, I believe this, I don't believe this, and then having several arguments. And then the church continually divides over their little subgrids of how they interpret different things. And pulling back to the big picture, something I've been studying is when evil is systemically 
either allowed or promoted or enabled within groups of people who identify as Christians. When evil is part of the system, and uh, specifically like, you know, slavery, misogyny, you, you name, name it. And one thing, I can't say this with absolute certitude. I've been talking to historians and theologians, and I'm kind of a Bible or Christian history junkie myself. Is it almost every point traditions ended up synthesizing the gospel, the gospel, which isn't a couple memory verses strewn together, but the whole story of Jesus and his work into a do's and don'ts, believe this, don't believe that, and check marks. And the thing is, the gospel doesn't survive the grid because the gospel is bigger than the grid. And this is why a lot of times I think uh, people with uh, backgrounds in literature, the arts, and poetry have a leg up on understanding scripture because they know how to read a book. And one thing is like, uh, but if we just treat it as an analytical process, it's kind of like saying a, a person who dissects a human and knows everything about the organs is going to be a relational expert. Now, frankly, you may dissect humans as a medical researcher. Eh, good on you. I wouldn't want that job. That doesn't mean de facto you're a relational expert. It just means you know the knee bones connected to whatever. But friends, we believe that God outed himself to us as being a relational God through sending us a relational Savior who continually broke taboos, ran afoul of religious authorities, but for some reason, people who, in the given culture he was at, would fear shame and sometimes fear for their life because of what their life has been like, People who were at the bottom of the barrel, people who risked being stoned for adultery and other things, were willing to brave the crowds that had judged him just to be with Jesus. There was something intrinsic about Jesus that the people who even themselves felt they made a mess of their lives, they would risk everything just to be with him. And I think whenever we read the scriptures, if we ever read them in a tone of voice that contradicts the presence that would cause people to take that risk, then we're reading it wrong. And that's where tone of voice, and that's where kind of method acting comes in, and improv, is you've got to read the whole story of Jesus over and over. Understanding the culture is helpful. Because I usually, you know, growing up, always being in trouble as a kid with teachers because of different learning. They called them learning disabilities. I would just say I was, uh, you know, had different attenuations. Uh, basically, when I would read the Bible, I'd read it as Jesus is angry, and Jesus is going to bust you. But as I really dove into the scriptures as a story, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, I feel like I can progressively more and more get why people would go through the crowds and risk every kind of social embarrassment and physical danger just to see him. So that's why Paul is angry, because if people embraced the grid the, the folks who were infiltrating his church, they would have lost that story. So, as a church, you know, our mission statement is, you know, Central Vineyard, we're endeavoring to live like Jesus, or embracing the Jesus lifestyle by gathering a community of prayer that engages suffering. First of all, there is no real context the scriptures were ever imagined to be just a personally 
uh, enriching practice to read. The scriptures were always meant for groups of people to interact with because the Holy Spirit would give people different perspectives on the story that would bring life to us. And uh, prayer, if scriptures are the word of God, in part, we, reading scriptures is a conversation. We affect that somehow in understanding this story, we're going to be able to hear God through this story but also as we get to know the nature of God by God's Holy Spirit, we get to improv Jesus. We get to live in situations that were never imagined of in the world of the New Testament and emulate Jesus. That doesn't work with a grid. So we endeavor to be a community of prayer that engages suffering. Uh, a lot of times uh, there's categories within these grid traditions that say, well, this is social justice, this is discipleship, this is evangelism, this is, they separate everything, and then they assign a numerical value. Well, evangelism is the most important, so as long as we do that, the other things, guys, that's like separating cardio and pulmonary. You know, our body systems, you know, if the skin is not as important as the nervous system, well, try to walk around life without a skin. You know, you can't separate, we abstract separating parts of the body but the body is nothing without all of those parts, all those systems working together. So engaging suffering, if people don't know, like one of the greatest antidotes to shame, self-hatred, self-harm, and isolation is if you believe that the foundation of the universe is a relational God who loves you no matter what. Just teasing that out, and that's almost too abstract, but when we read about Jesus, we can begin to understand it. Like, I believe if someone who has not believed that there is unconditional love out there or had an experience of unconditional love at any point is suffering. I believe that someone who's being withheld immigration status or uh, asylum who faces death in their home country that hasn't been fully welcomed in the way God described how welcome works in the scriptures is suffering. And frankly, I'm not going to rate those sufferings because... Jesus would go for preaching the gospel that sets the whole world free to just one blind person. Jesus would alternate between the masses and the forgotten person. In fact, Jesus literally uh, goes out of his way or goes through Samaria, and the only thing he really does is have a conversation with a woman at a well. Jesus did not do things in the corporate strategic fashion. He did things in the viral, nothing can stop the kingdom of God story basis. So I'm going to talk just quickly about stories in general. Uh, one thing, my wife and I are both biography and history junkies. Uh, and one thing I've really admired about Adrian is how she'll dive deep on the life of someone who trains the world and read every scrap of information. She was study, she's studying women's suffrage. Uh, quite a bit. Now, most of us would say we agree women need all equal rights and women needed the vote. And the fact that our country initially didn't give women the vote was wrong. We have that belief. But when you read the narrative of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and you read about uh, her going to an abolitionist meeting and realizing women aren't even allowed in the meeting to abolish slavery, like they were separate. And she was inspired to organize around solely women's suffrage. And then uh, met Lucretia Mott, who was at that meeting. They gather together, and then they end up writing a commentary on the uh, Declaration of Independence and 
called the Declaration of Sentiments, where they include women in everything in the Declaration of Independence. And they kept writing and writing. And I, about 80% of what she wrote was amazing, but because she'd experienced exclusion and trauma in the church, she had a real hard time relating Jesus, the one who would break social rules to talk to women, the one whose resurrection was first preached at the women at the tomb. But her experience of faith had been where the faith had conformed to the culture. So she, did, she had some kind of uh, sad beliefs there, I think, because I think what she did with her life was totally in line with the gospel. But, uh, you know, all the policies that changed through her organization. So Adrian, as she's read this story, her view of justice has become more robust. It isn't just this is right and this is wrong. It's these are the stories of people's experience of injustice, and these are the stories how weak, fragile, flawed people can come together and combat injustice. And I've noticed the more she reads, the more her eyes are opened to God's heart for the world. Uh, she is, Frederick Douglass is another person who literally, she couldn't preach a sermon and talk about Frederick Douglass because she cried the whole time. And it's uh, his work in abolitionism. And then what I found out is what I fell in love She's not here today, so she would probably be a little bit miffed that I'm telling Adrienne stories, but she's not here, so I'm at least I'm talking good behind her back. But I realized the things that I respected most about her, that I fell in love with her about, were so many things that were formed by stories. She grew up in a context where women were treated different than men, but she studied the life of Amy Carmichael, who... Uh, had a severe form of like fibromyalgia or myalgia, was in severe pain all the time, moved to India, just her, and basically created the first systemic alternative to kids becoming temple slaves, aka prostitutes in a certain region of India. And kids that were, the parents couldn't afford to care for, or if maybe they inherited a kid from a family member who died that they didn't want, the kids would be given to the temple. And the priests, uh, historically, historical fact, would oftentimes traffic these uh, women or kids as prostitutes to raise money to help the temple. It was a system of human exploitation. And she created orphan homes that ended up, I think, the first few years rescuing like 800 kids. In her whole life, as a, per as a woman who wasn't given full respect as a leader in her home nation, went and started engaging a social structure. Now, she wasn't pushing her culture. In fact, she refused to wear anything that looked Western. She did everything she could do to embrace what, everything she found beautiful about the culture in India. But she resisted the system of injustice. You know, and every culture group has a way of systemically destroying life. We're by no means not guilty. We have more passive ways of doing it in some ways. But that story so much formed my wife that her love for people and her desire to love people no matter what their cultural background was when, you know, early 90s, everyone's in their own clique and stuff, and Adrian's like never fit in. She was a third culture kid, spent seven years of her life in Haiti and moved around. But those stories of people inspired her, and that was related to the story of Jesus. Now, I'm bringing this up because I'm saying these stories that inspire, often the greatest story to inspire is the story of Jesus. But wait, what makes it more that inspires, the Bible word for inspire is God-breathed. 
The breath of God lives within a story saying the Holy Spirit, while Jesus, Jesus was God incarnate human flesh. Human flesh means like, I can't have one-on-one -on -one coffee with all of you at once. I can have one-on-one -on -one coffee with Jesse or someone else. But the Holy Spirit is the aspect of God, of the person of God, that can be in everyone. And somehow animates our experience of not only reading the story, but being inspired to acts of courage and kindness that are our way of adding the next chapter. That God sometimes, even specifically, sometimes audibly guides us to. And what I think is a lot of us have kind of had this varnished Jesus where we've become immune to the story or we've been infected with a, a tone to the story that makes it totally non-inspirational. And what I'm saying is we can have a, most of us would agree on a set of rules of what's right and wrong. But there's difference between labeling something within a system versus finding yourself active in a story where you play a part of the hands and feet of Jesus Sloppy, broken, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. People that despite everything, God uses us and includes us. Because God, when he sees someone with one tiny bit of faith, he doesn't condemn them for all the things they missed. It's like when God talks to the Roman centurion, the Roman centurion gets one thing right, and that's Jesus has authority, so he doesn't need to be physically present to order something to happen. That's some total of this guy's theology. Jesus loses it and says, I've known no other greater faith in Israel than this man, who was actually one of the Roman oppressors. I mean, it shows that God is much easier to please than people. That sounds like heresy to some people, but anyway. So these stories, when we're over Lent, which is, uh, begins Ash Wednesday, March 2nd, I want to ask that we all go through a devotional together a 46-day devotional by Brian Zahn, who's one of my favorite theologians, teachers, and Bob Dylan fans out there, where we, together as a community, engage these Bible studies and meditations, asking God to scrape all the layers of varnish and show us the matte finish Jesus, not the glossy Jesus, not the corporate Jesus, not the following of Jesus where we seek to become celebrities and have monuments to ourselves and write. You know, there's people that actually do versions of the Bible and name them after themselves, like the so-and-so study Bible, all to, you know, somehow thinking that a celebrity has more influence in the kingdom than someone who was formerly homeless. Because the idea of the Gospels is it's the people who are losing life and find Jesus that are the influencers, not the people that give you more influencer cachet, all right? The, the corporate Western celebrity tradition. But uh, when we look at this, I was asking Adrian, he said, tell me what things in your life, how have these stories impacted your imagination? And she just went on and on and on. And I said, so did you go into reading about suffrage and abolition thinking, well, maybe slavery is okay? No. But because she emotionally surrendered herself to engaging this story, she discerns and has a passion for people and a love for humans that she didn't have beforehand. How much more so with the Gospels? So there's a debate. Uh, how we translate. You know, since the Protestant Reformation, uh, Galatians 2, uh, 16 through 17, I want to read a traditional translation. 
that it, a Western translation. That's this. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Well, the problem with this translation is, first of all, justified isn't a word that really means anything to people. And probably uh, justified is a phrase. Declared to be righteous would be how we would translate it. Declared to be righteous, that you are members of the people of God. Declared to be righteous. So it's difficult when a translation where a word would have a bigger impact is translated into a word of a lesser impact. First issue, you know, every, and every translation has an expiration date because language is dynamic. Faith in Jesus Christ is juxtaposed against works. Now, during the Reformation, following Christ was pay to play. If you wanted to hook up with a prostitute, you could pay a certain amount of money to Friar Tetzel to get what was called an indulgence that would be God's forgiveness in advance so you could go sin, so you could balance your ledger of sin. And uh, the gospel was viewed through a grid on both sides of the debate. It was a spreadsheet of how do I cover my sin so I can go to heaven when I die. And that's taking the gospel that impacts every second, even remixes how we interact with our past, and narrows it to like an escape from jail card. And the gospel is so big. The gospel, I, does, I do believe, ushers us into eternal life with Jesus. But if we view it based on how people are reacting to a system of fundraising, to build, uh, you know, whatever, a church, then uh, we're not, Paul did not write this letter to the reformers. Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians about having culture before the gospel. So um, the controversy is a lot of folks have been translating it this way now or rendering it this way. But we know that a person is not declared righteous by works of the Jewish law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah. That is why we too believed in the Messiah, Jesus. And uh, Christ is not Jesus' surname. Christ is a declaration of being king. To say Caesar was called the Christ in uh, first century. And to say Jesus was Christ was sedition. It was a capital offense in many circumstances. Jesus Christ was an entire story in a nutshell. Jesus is king. Implicit within Caesar is not. No one else is king. There can only be one king. Jesus is king. So when we say Messiah, say Messiah Jesus, that they believe Jesus was king. We were declared righteous not by following a grid or a code, but through the faithfulness of Jesus. So it, the word in Greek, I'm not going to exhaust you. You can go to uh, academia.edu and read a hundred stories. I mean, uh, hundreds of articles about two peace days in Greek, which is either uh, faith in Jesus or faithfulness of Jesus. Is it the passive? Is it the subjective? Or is it the objective datum tense? Complicated stuff. Now, I would argue that either translation, when viewed in the whole context of Scripture, we still live within a story, not just a reactive checkmark. But 
Faith in Jesus, us believing in Jesus, versus the faithfulness of Jesus to engage humankind. That the Word became flesh, lived this life, told stories, enacted stories, invited the uninvitable, and then the collusion of religious authorities and political authorities teamed up to torture them, execute them. Did something that was unique in the culture. You would flog someone or you would crucify them. They did both. Because eventually someone flogged to the extent Jesus was, would die maybe a couple weeks later. He got the, he basically, the t- tools of tyranny are torture and death. Every tyrannical regime holds on to power through the threat of torture and death. And Jesus was tortured and he was killed, meaning he took upon himself the ultimate expression of evil in this world, exhausted its power, died, and came back three days later. Now, that is absolutely ridiculous to believe, unless you believe there's a God, and then there is opportunity for intervention. All right? I do believe God intervened, and I do believe the testimonies of the witnesses and the, 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 the stickiness of this story for 2,000 years when the other ones fade into obscurity. But the focus on how I live isn't like, do I, am I believing hard enough in order to have this person healed? And do I, am I confidence enough, do I lack? And it comes with this Western idea of certainty. And when we say certainty, we mean I unquestionable belief that no matter what I believe is true 100%, I believe. Now the scriptural, the pre-enlightenment idea of certainty was better translated as assurance. Like Daniel was saying, like we have assurance that our parents or caregiver wants to provide for us so we don't fear about the next meal. It's not proof that that next meal is going to exist, but it's a relational assurance in good, that good parents will feed us good food. All right? So when we think certainty as this scientific method proof, then, I don't know, for us, I don't think any of us would be true Christians, or at least I would. I've struggled with certain doubt. I've, I've struggled with, am I really, is this all true? I, I've had low points in my life, some of them having to do with clinical depression, otherwise. But the assurance has always been there. The Western version of certainty that I can argumentatively prove every element of my belief is not always there. Because God is relational. And if Jesus is God in the flesh, then we serve a relational God. But we know that a person is not declared righteous by the works of the Jewish law. This is, by the way, N.T. Wright's translation. Um, you can get this on Kindle or things called the Kingdom New Testament. This is really helpful, especially for reading Paul's letters, uh, because he translates it in light of what we know about first century Judaism, not in light about what was going on in Germany 500 years ago. And he's a, you know, a scholar of first century Judaism in that era, and it's just nice also to read other translations if you maybe you've become it's become varnished for you. But through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah, that's why we too believed in the Messiah Jesus. So there still is belief in Jesus, but we're believing in Him, partnered with His story of faithfulness. Because a lot of people believe in a Jesus I don't believe in. In fact, I've believed in a Jesus that I don't now believe in. When I believe Jesus is waiting 
And even though my parents don't know how I've screwed up, Jesus knows. And when I die, he's going to play me this movie. Showing me every time. Anyone ever hear that story? Wipe away. Wipe away every tear. A lot of us think Jesus, if we're honest, Jesus is like an alcoholic parent that blame shifts to his kids. So this idea, I want to read uh, the Galatians passage again. I want to read uh, 15 through 21. We are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. But we know that a person is not declared righteous by works of the Jewish law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah, which automatically that points us back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What is the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah? It's not a word. It's four, four stories. And that's why I'm going to ask you guys that you know, get this book, The Unvarnished Jesus by Brian Zahn. If you don't have access to a computer and can't get a body for we'll buy anyone that needs a book that can't afford it. We never do anything that financially one person will be excluded because they don't have the scratch for the book. So if you need a hard copy of it, let us know. Otherwise, you can get a hard copy through Amazon or download it or from the library. No creature will be declared righteousness by the law. Well then, if in seeking to be declared righteous in the Messiah, we are found to be sinner, does that mean the Messiah is an agent of sin? Meaning if broken us are saved through the faithful actions of Jesus, does that mean Jesus enables sin? Because people that look at the equation, they could say, well, if God supports people that have done wrong, then God does the wrong thing. And they... But the story, and Paul's like, come on, guys. Come on. Actually, when he says certainly not or by no means, um, I'll just say brief. Those are very bad translations because essentially Paul's being sweary according to the writing conventions of the day. Paul is very passionately saying, come on. If I break up once more the things which I tore down, I demonstrate I'm a lawbreaker. Let me explain it like this. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified along with the Messiah. However, I'm alive. But it isn't me any longer. It's the Messiah who lives in me. In the life I'm living, in the flesh, I'm living within the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't set aside God's grace. If righteousness comes to the law, then the Messiah died for nothing. Our salvation resides on the entirety of Jesus. So where I'm going with this, this can seem like such a small distinction. But I think it makes all the difference. Living within a story that is true, and the subject of that story is alive. And that subject of that story, with all this power of that subject can have a supernatural alignment to the Holy Spirit with our souls, meaning it's not just we're the best understanders of story, but in, 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 with us in God and with us in community, there's an element where we can sharpen one another to live that story. 
And Jesus specifically doesn't mention refugees, even though the idea of refugee, Jesus was a refugee. You know, there's a policy of Herod that kids born in a certain area would be killed. Jesus became a refugee to the place where Jews were once slaves in Egypt. And the bitter irony is the new Pharaoh is the ruler of Israel, and Jesus has to go, his family takes him to Egypt to find freedom in the story, which is essentially saying that, you know, God is going to work through people of all cultures, and sometimes the culture you're from can work against God. And we see so many examples, you know, I'm an expert American because I've spent 50 years kind of living here. I'm, I've got mild knowledge about other places, but really, I've got a, several PhDs experientially speaking on living in this country. So some people think I, I criticize as much. It's, I believe it's more powerful to point out the sins of you and your people than to point fingers outside your culture. So when I shared this idea of the destruction of children in India, I'm not saying that we're so superior. I think we, our culture has ha found so many ways to destroy and objectify human bodies. So that is an important footnote to say. I just, I don't want to be guilty of pointing out someone else's junk and not owning the legacy and not to mention all the ease in life I have in my life based on centuries of injustice that mean because I'm a, a white male, I live life on the easiest setting. All right, now, by the way, I feel, you just hate on yourself. No, I don't hate on myself. In fact, my life with Jesus has been every year progressively believing that he loves me and hating on myself less. All right? So when I can say that, that is not the gateway to self-harm. It's the gateway to dancing. All right? So the takeaway here, guys, is no matter where we're at, Jesus is always available to further astonish us. And frankly, if we continually rotate through this story, and together as a community, listen, our church, you could write papers and papers of all the structural weaknesses and disorganization, because unfortunately, uh, sometimes the people that plant the church can maybe infect it with their good stuff and their lackluster stuff, right? And so... The one thing we endeavor to be in this great coming back together in this evolving world, pandemic slash post-pandemic world, is this is our improv collective. This is our method acting group where we are going to continually read and discuss this story and by God's spirit come together in initiatives that enact this story because we believe Jesus is king is you know how housing displaced refugees is that evangelism is it discipleship is it social justice no, it's just jesusy let's just simplify our kids get this it's just jesusy what do you think ask a kid would jesus help a child that doesn't have a place to live or would he have better things to do and a kid who's heard any bible stories would say jesus would help the kid let's be theologians like that so as we're coming together on a couple of these initiatives and working it relationally, one of the brilliant things about a relationally structured group of people is it's also a difficult thing is there's not as much of a bureaucracy to do justice work. If you look at every great abolition or women's rights movement, generally there was kind of a disorganized fellowship of people that loved the same thing and lived the same story together. If you look at uh, the way that, you know, uh, Granville Sharp influenced the early abolitionists, 
it was just relationship talk, discussion, and lots of beer and coffee or whatever, beer and tea. That's how those things hatched. And what we're hoping to do now is live the joy where fractured, fragile us, all of us probably has a homepage somewhere on the DSM-5, if you know what I'm talking about, come together by the power of the Spirit are greater than the sum of our parts. And let's struggle, maybe, I'm oftentimes limping, but let's limp with tear-stained, joyful eyes towards the culmination of Christ's story when he returns to set all things right. And what we do is we don't live as nationalists, we don't live as patriots, we don't live as uh, any political identification contemporary. We live the future. We live as subjects of Christ as king, no matter what our culture is. We partner in the public and civic arena as best as we can, but we never have loyalty to anything but Jesus' love. And listen, that's going to affect everything. That, that affects zoning. You know, how we zone. There are certain zoning rules that make it hard to house people. It affects what we think about financial po- It affects everything. But that's not because we worship those policies. It's because Jesus will dynamically work with us. And frankly, the thing that will happen first, and most of us will never figure out the ills of the world, but we'll know how to be present to people who are suffering. Amen? So we're going to close in worship. We, what we do here is we generally, everyone can stand, unless you're not standable. But we have people who can pray for you. Generally, if you feel compelled to do or act on anything we said today, if you don't somehow physically embody or act on what you've felt in your gut to do, immediately, it won't happen. It's just pretty much true. But one physical thing you can do is walk your body over to someone and have them partner with you, affirm what God is saying to you, and pray for you. No one who prays is like super spiritual. If we can get to the sides of prayer, folks. And also, if you're suffering, you know, if you're like me and are periodically suffering from depression, or if you have a physical malady, which I've got a couple of those going on too. Yeah, I'm in check marking the boxes. Or if you have, uh, you're having financial struggles, or if you're... You just need hope. What, if you're suffering anyway, the first way we can come alongside you in the fellowship of suffering is pray for you. Otherwise, after we do this, uh, we haven't figured out how to do a meet and greet and somehow include our online folks who aren't able to come be with us physically. So we're doing that at the end of the service. We, can, we encourage you to linger. This place is zoned for awkwardness. And, you know, there is no inner ring here. There's just a bunch of people trying to love God and love one another. And we encourage you into that next. So Jesus took an ethnic-specific feast to celebrate salvation brought to the entire world. He took the Passover that celebrated Jews being freed from slavery in Egypt. And he took that feast and said, this feast isn't just about Egypt anymore. It's about freedom from sin and death that every country every nation past present has their skin in the game of the suffering game he said this bread you're holding you break and you eat you share this is my body and it's being broken for you the same way after the supper he took the cup and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood the power of following christ is not coercive force 
It's the power of Jesus' love where he'll go as far as spilling blood. That he gives us a blood transfusion where we serve the sacrificial, joyful, loving God, not the coercive power that seeks to dominate. So when we eat this, they say you are what you eat. Well, I'm not, I want to be Jesus, so let's do this. Lord Jesus. Lord bless you guys.